Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for January 13th, 2023. I'm Joy LaClaire. Professor Clarence Lussain is the chair of Howard University's Department of Political Science and director of the International Affairs Program. For more than 40 years, he has written about and been active in national and international human rights, anti-racism politics, democracy building, and social justice issues such as education, criminal justice, and voting rights. Among his books are The Black History of the White House, Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, Foreign Policy, Race, and the New American Century, and Pipe Dream Blues, Racism and the War on Drugs. We spoke with him about his most recent book, $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Struggle for Racial Justice and Democracy, published by City Lights Books. While I was preparing for the interview with Dr. Lussain, Nate Gowdy's book titled Insurrection, a book of photos he took on January 6, 2021, as he was swept by a mob of Proud Boys and Three Percenters onto the steps of the U.S. Capitol building came to my attention. In the second part of today's Forthright Radio, we share excerpts from an extended interview with Nate Gowdy about his work and what he experienced that day. We hope you can stay tuned for that. But first, we spoke with Professor Clarence Lussain via Skype on January 10th, 2023. As does everyone, I suppose, we are living in historic times. Last week, during the longest election process for a Speaker of the House since the very eve of the Civil War in 1859, there were two people of African descent nominated for the Speakership, Florida Republican Byron Donalds and New York Democrat Hakeem Jeffries. The process was strung along for 15 votes over four days by up to 20 members of the so-called Freedom Caucus, many of whom were among the 139 House members who had voted on January 7th, 2021, not to certify the 2020 electoral vote count, among them Kevin McCarthy himself, and this after the violent, bloody insurrection that caused the members of the Congress, their staff, and guests to flee the chamber in fear of their lives. Now, Professor Lussain, your book, $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy, does much to illuminate factors that have led us to our current crisis of democracy, not just in the United States, but around the world. Many would like to relegate discussions of history to the mists of some distant past with little or no relevance to our current situation. But our history is actually not all that distant. As you point out, born in 1822, Harriet Tubman's life overlapped with those of John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, our second, third, and fourth presidents, as well as our 40th president, Ronald Reagan, who was born in 1911, and Harriet Tubman lived until 1913. Many of our listeners' lives overlapped with Reagan's, so considered this way, we are really only four lifetimes 
from the signing of the Declaration of Independence to the present moment. You posit her legacy with that of the seventh president, Andrew Jackson, whose visage has been on the $20 bill since 1928, although he was originally on the $10 bill in 1914. Tell our listeners how you came to write about Harriet Tubman. Thank you for that very important contextual introduction. And thank you for having me. At the end of the Obama administration, there was a proposal from the administration, from the Department of Treasury specifically, to change images on some of the paper currency, the $5 bill, the $10 bill, and probably what received the most attention, the $20 bill. And after months of inquiries and public meetings, lobbying from various groups, the decision was made that Harriet Tubman would be the person who would replace Andrew Jackson on the front of the $20 bill. Now, at that time, and still currently, the idea was that Jackson would, in fact, be moved to the back of the bill. So there's still an issue around that. And there's certainly people who are pushing back. Why would you have both of them on the same bill? So as that issue emerged, it was also in the context of the rise of Trump. And Trump fit in perfectly with where the Republican Party was happening. I thought it was really important that one of the supporters of Trump in the Republican Party stated, and I think accurately, that the party did not adjust to Trump. Trump adjusted to the party. And that's important because as big and egregious a figure as Donald Trump is, when he's gone, these issues that have characterized his political life will not go away. And at the core of where we're at right now, is the battle over democracy versus authoritarianism. So for me, looking at Harriet Tubman was to go back and to attempt to recast her a bit. Primarily, she's seen as someone who fought against slavery, risked her own life on numerous occasions uh, after she escaped to go back and help others escape. And that's really important, but there's a tendency to stop her life at that point. The most recent movie, for example, that came out titled Harriet ends with her leading a raid down the Kambahi River in the middle of the Civil War. And then it just sort of stops. And I think that does her a disservice because not only did she fight to end slavery, but she fought for women's rights. She spoke out about voting rights. She lobbied on behalf of the poor, on behalf of people who were ill and did not have health care. And I think the larger context is I see her as a fighter for a genuine, multiracial, multi-class, multi-religious democracy. And then that's what I think links her struggle in her life. And as you point out, that touched basically three centuries to where we're at today. Many of our listeners have a broad understanding, knowledge of her heroism. They know the bare bones of her story, particularly before the Civil War. But she actually was very active in the Civil War. Yes, yeah, so this is really important 
Anybody that went to public school in the U.S. probably has heard of Harriet Tubman and knew that she freed people who were enslaved. But she was much, much more than that. During the Civil War, when she could have basically rested on her laurels, she had helped her family escape, her elderly parents that she needed to take care of. So it would have been completely understandable if that's really how she spent her time. She was also wanted. Uh, she had been captured. She would have been sent back into slavery or killed. But this wasn't Harriet Tubman. She was a fighter every single day of her life. So she volunteered to work in the Civil War. And she played multiple roles. She was a nurse. She was a scout. But she also became the first woman to lead a military expedition in the U.S. There was a raid that she was put in charge of with hundreds of Black troops to go down the Kambahai River in South Carolina and basically burn the Confederate camps along the way and free people who were enslaved. So on that mission, she rescued her and, and the troops, about 800 people who had been enslaved and brought them all back to safety. So that's the kind of daring that her life really kind of characterized. And that particular incident inspired a group of radical Black women in the 70s and 80s to form a, a group called the Kambahi River Collective, which was a radical, socialist, lesbian women's organization. But they saw themselves in the spirit of Harriet Tubman. She was leading, under Colonel James Montgomery, 300 Black soldiers on three gunships on that river. And as you mentioned, they emancipated about 800, what they then called contrabands, because that was in the South, without losing a single soldier. And although she was denied pension benefits that she certainly deserved, She was eventually inducted into the U.S. Military Intelligence Corps Hall of Fame in 2021. Yeah, so even to this day, there's still monuments going up to her. There's still awards being given to her. She's passed away in 1913, but her legacy is just so important to where we're at today. Clarence Lusain, as we mentioned, your book posits her against President Andrew Jackson, a very different legacy. And I really appreciated that you brought up this in the context of W.E.B. Du Bois's Two Futures of Our Country. Talk about Du Bois's Two Futures and then contrast Harriet Tubman with the person who's been on the $20 bill about 100 years now. W.B. Du Bois and many other African-American leaders and leaders from the Native American, Latino communities, other communities have postured that the country is always at a bridge and it can either further expand democracy, make it more inclusive, or it can move towards more autocratic, more authoritarian, more exclusive ways of structuring society. And so Harriet Tubman and and Andrew Jackson really kind of represent those two different roles, those two different futures that W.B. Du Bois talked about. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Harriet Tubman had a vision of democracy that was really inclusive. That compared to Andrew Jackson, who not only was an enslaver and a slave trader and a full participant 
in massacres against Native Americans and put forth policies that eventually led to the Trail of Tears in the 1830s, on which uh, thousands of Native Americans were displaced, forced to march on foot out of their traditional lands, and many died. But he also is seen as someone who founded the Democratic Party. And he's sometimes presented as someone who expanded democracy. But in fact, his view of democracy was extremely exclusive. It basically included white males. No one else was seen from Jackson's point of view as deserving. And if you read his speeches and look at his policies and look at his life, he was an extremely vicious individual who brought personal harm to many, many, many people. So his heralding is really kind of an affront to uh, people who really want democracy and fairness and justice. I mentioned that Andrew Jackson was the seventh president. He could have been the sixth president in 1824. And you write that he actually won the popular vote, but the Electoral College awarded the contested election to John Quincy Adams, whose vice president was John C. Calhoun. Anyway, like I say, we're living in history and it it just won't go away. Jackson, you know, just to go back a little bit, he won a plurality and he didn't win the election in 1824. And so it kind of exposed what you're talking about, this built-in conflict between the popular vote and an elite vote about who becomes president. And interesting, John Quincy Adams, who did become president, would later become one of the main voices in Congress against slavery. And so all of that kind of came together. Jackson's legacy was really tied to, in his life, was really tied to slavery and to the ways in which he built his fortune, not only through the slave trade and his brutality of people who were enslaved to him, but also through land that was seized by Jackson and family members and friends that came from displaced Native people. So he really, really has just the most horrible legacy you could imagine, which is, again, not surprising. He would then become Donald Trump's favorite president. As you write in your book and was reported in the press during the Trump administration, and I believe you wrote that this was at the suggestion of Steve Bannon, Jackson's portrait was moved into the Oval Office in a very prominent place for photo opportunities. And I vividly remember a meeting former President Trump had with, I can't remember which Native American leaders they were, but there were two of them. After the interview, I realized that these Navajo elders were actually known as code talkers. And the photo op was the three of them, Trump and the two elderly code breakers, with Andrew Jackson's photograph centered in the photo that was released. And I don't know if that was ignorance on the part of those doing that or if it was purposeful, but it was cringeworthy even at the time. Certainly, Donald Trump never read a single book or article or page on history in his entire life. So the fact that he came to center himself around Andrew Jackson really was because of Steve Bannon and others who were attempting to cultivate a particular kind of brand that Donald Trump kind of leaned into. But he certainly, Donald Trump himself, 
I absolutely knew nothing about Andrew Jackson or any of the presidents that preceded him. But he would use the Oval Office to make racist remarks. For example, and I think even during that event, he said something to the effect used to insult Senator Elizabeth Warren by calling her Pocahontas. He saw that as kind of a joke about her past statements of, of her Native American or her thinking that she had Native American ancestry. But he would use that in a slanderous kind of way because, of course, he was completely ignorant and unaware and uncaring about other people's feelings. Well, I'm glad you brought up Pocahontas because we really should do a rundown of the history of currency in the United States. And you informed me that Pocahontas was actually on some of our currency. And the irony that Andrew Jackson was on paper currency at all. Explain why that's ironic. Well, Andrew Jackson came up in a period where there was a fierce debate in the country over whether there should be a national bank and whether there should be paper currency at all. Uh, The country had used basically coins up to that point. So Jackson was a fierce opponent of creating a national money system, which meant he didn't support at all paper funding. And during his presidency, he spoke out against the National Bank. And so, again, as you point out, it was just kind of ironic then that he ends up on several currencies after he passed in the late 1800s and into the 20th century, now into the 21st century. In the early days of the United States of America, each individual state was issuing currency, right? Right, which, of course, created financial chaos and would be like every currency in the world trying to exist in one circumstance. And so clearly it was a problem, but most people did not work and engage in ways in which they were paid in currency. So, you know, it didn't have that direct total impact on people's everyday life, but it was a chaos that ultimately could not sustain. And so we saw the evolution of a banking system and a currency system that minted and printed currency that began to evolve. And then the question became, once you develop these materials, who will be represented on them? And this is an issue the entire globe faces. In any country you go to, there's an issue of who's going to be on the currency. In some circumstances, there are no particular images. But in many countries, there are images. So then that becomes the question of who gets represented and who doesn't, who's seen as important and who's seen as marginalized. Is it only kings and queens or do you put on working people? Do you put on a diversity of genders? All those kind of issues confront nations as they bring currency into public light. And that again, is a narrative that says something about the country and its priorities. We probably shouldn't go into it too deeply, but as I mentioned, in 1865, Pocahontas was on the $20 bill of U.S. currency. Now, that was back when $20 bought quite a bit. According to one source, $20 from 1863 would translate into $365 in 2023 currency. 
so having Harriet Tubman on the much devalued $20 current bill, she would not be the first woman by any means that would be on U.S. currency. She wouldn't be the first woman. There was Pocahontas. There was a bill with Martha Washington, maybe. I can't remember at the moment. And then there have been a couple of images, but those are mostly special issue currency and not permanent. So Harriet Tubman and the projection that you know women who would be on the five and ten dollar ten dollar bills would really be the first for the currency that's most in use and that's seen as relatively permanent. We're speaking with Professor Clarence Lusain about his book, $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy. This was the end of the Obama administration when Treasury Secretary Liu put in motion. And this was done by some sort of polling of who would be on the bill? Yes. So just to give a little bit of history, I think probably for many people, the issue of who should be on the bill and how that should be debated and discussed didn't come up until 2015. But actually, there's a longer history. The issue of whether women should be on the $20 bill goes back decades, where there's evidence of letters that went to the Treasury, went to the White House, uh, inquiring about why are women on the bill? which, of course, were ignored and basically not responded to. But there's a record of that. Going back to the 1960s, there was a very famous rap group that did a rap about the images on the U.S. currency, specifically on the $1 bill, a rap group called The Last Poets. So there's a history of acknowledging and recognizing that this was not all good. And I also mentioned in the book that for decades, there were Native Americans who wouldn't touch a $20 bill because of Andrew Jackson. So there was some precedent there when in 2015, in part due to a a lawsuit and a decision by the Supreme Court that the next uh, issuance of U.S. currency had to take into account people with disabilities meant that there were going to be changes. And then because periodically there has to be security changes, all of that opened up the door for taking advantage of an opportunity to put different images on. So parallel to what Treasury Secretary Liu was beginning to do to open up the discussion, there was an organization, a group uh, called Women on Twenties, which was also lobbying for changes. Initially, there was an effort to try to change the $10 bill. Uh, Alexander Hamilton is on the front. But because the play Hamilton became such a giant hit, that became kind of a no-go. So then the focus sort of shifted to the 20. And then Women on 20 did a couple of rounds of surveys of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, I think, And Harriet Tubman came out as the consensus candidate through all of that. So it all sort of came together. And then Lou basically pulled the trigger on Harriet Tubman in 2015. That 
kind of reached a dead end during the Trump administration with not very much explanation. The incoming Secretary of Treasury explained that this couldn't happen before, I think, 2030. We won't spend much time on that. But there were many who were excited about this, and particularly among the African-American community. But there was also pushback from some African-Americans. What can you tell us about that? There's a significant and understandable fear that putting Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill is performative, that rather than addressing the serious issues facing the African-American community, the disparities, the rise of white supremacy, you know, those issues that an easy appeasement is to do this sort of symbolic act. So there's a concern about that, again, understandably, because that has been the, the situation in the past. And there are those who argue, for example, with the response to the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, that there was a lot of symbolism there was putting Black Lives Matter on the floor of the NBA. There was, you know, all kinds of donations and things being made. But the kind of policy changes that needed to happen to address these issues were more on the short side. So there was absolutely that kind of concern. And then it was raised also by a number of people of Harriet Tubman having been enslaved, basically like other enslaved people, a commodity, someone who was bought and sold, putting her on the currency was probably more ironic than honorable. So all of those issues have been raised. And as someone trying to explain this, you know, I give those concerns some airing. But more generally, however, I think the Black community and the polling and other data support it, overwhelmingly support Harry Tubman being on the $20 bill and see it as a significant message about who's important and that the country is not just made up of entitled white males, but it's very, very diverse. And then Harry Tubman has just been the epitome of all of that as we understand her life and her history. Clarence Hussein, the second part of your book addresses the second part of the title, $20 and change, and it accentuates the change part of it. In the first part of the book, you really illuminate the concept of Columbia as the icon of white supremacy and racism. Would you briefly expand on that for us? So Columbia is a symbol of a goddess that's kind of old European. And when the country was founded, when the U.S. was founded by people from Europe, she became one of the images that sort of became important in reflecting where the new country was kind of headed and where it was kind of going, and that she was uh, watching over the country. And she's pretty much forgotten now. No one thinks about it. But during the 1700s, she was a well-known kind of image. And even African-Americans, Phyllis Wheatley, who was the 
first African-American first woman, I think, to be published. And, you know, she even kind of wrote about her. And where I'm at here in Washington, D.C., District of Columbia, kind of harkens to that as well. So that image was seen as important. And as I point out in the book, during the Civil War, when the Confederacy issued its currency, it, of course, could not use the currency of the country it was trying to succeed from. So it issued its own money, paper currency. And one of the images was uh, Columbia. There is the very famous painting, large, heroic painting of Columbia, this giant presence over the wagon trains going west. And she sort of became a manifest destiny symbol as well. Yeah, this that painting is called American Progress. And as you point out, it is specifically over seizing lands to the west that had been long, long, long uh, inhabited and lived on by Native Americans. It's pretty well established, at least on Forthright Radio, that the history of racism and white supremacy is absolutely inextricable with American history and the history of this hemisphere, as a matter of fact. This is being contested at the school board level all the way up currently. Nonetheless, we will just stipulate to that. And it's important because, as you point out in in your book, Clarence Lussane, there is an anxiety among people of European descent that is becoming quite violent. And this is in the last 10 years, or particularly in the last, let's say, four or five years, the clash between the symbols of, and particularly statuary and that sort of thing, where Confederate symbolism of generals' statues is being pulled down. I would like for you to discuss the importance of symbolism and the role that such things has played in the continuation of white supremacy in the United States. Yes, this is really, really an important question, because if we look at the tensions that have risen around uh, specifically the removal of Confederate images and monuments and such, that fits into a very conflicted history. The Confederacy was understood at the time of the Civil War as being about defending slavery. It was only decades later that you get a revision of what the war was about that begins to frame it as a defense of states' rights and there was an overreaching national government. You know, those kinds of positioning, what had happened, which was to serve not just the past, but to rationalize the imposition of Jim Crow segregation. And most of the Confederate monuments and statutes and such occurred at the end of the 19th century. Then there was another surge around the time of the civil rights movement. So these images really are about contemporary politics, not about some mythical past. And so we see that kind of all over the place. And it was really important in 2020 that 
there was a massive global movement, not just in the U.S., to push back against the validation and valorizing of these imperialists, the colonializers, the enslavers, the segregationists, the human rights violators. And so that's really what the movement to rename, reclaim, and rebrand the public space is about. So it's really important because most of the time these symbols are sort of passively looked at, but in fact, they really are telling a story. And we can see the importance by the degree to which there's resistance to moving them. So this is what Unite the Right rally was about in 2017 in Virginia. And so it's really, really critical that these movements really have been successful in in reclaiming public space in a way that moves more towards inclusion and, and justice. There has been some success in that endeavor, not only in the United States, but elsewhere in the world as well. You recount heroic efforts. Breen Newsom, very briefly, in the interest of time, remind our listeners about her climbing the flagpole. So Breen Newsom is an activist who, like many, was not happy at all with the Confederate flag over the state capitol in South Carolina. And she in particularly became her and her colleagues determined to do something after the massacre that happened in Charleston when a white supremacist murdered nine black individuals at Mother Emanuel Church during a prayer session. So they were determined that that flag was coming down. So she trained herself. She did not know how to climb up a flagpole. Most of us probably don't know how to do that. So she was trained to do that. They picked a date. They waited for their opportunity. And when she saw it, when she was given the signal that there was a time when she could go and get to the pole, she went and got to the pole and started climbing. Immediately, the police came and they threatened her and told her she better come down. And she was like, I'm not coming down except with this flag. And so she went up and got the flag and and brought it down. Of course, she was immediately arrested. But it was uh, shortly after that, that then the governor, Nikki Haley, out of the pressure from other governors who are already starting to make these changes, decided that they would remove the Confederate flag. And that was pretty much the last one, except for Mississippi, which it would happen later. But you can imagine in 21st century, the Confederate flag is still flying. And it's just an affront to people just all over the country. But it's taken massive effort to have it removed and to not passively give it some legitimacy. Amazon was selling flags. You can get Confederate things everywhere. And so a lot of that has pretty much shut down as it should. As far as many Black people are concerned, many other people, it's a Nazi symbol. You're not going to be selling, you know, swastikas and having swastika flags all over the place. So many people feel the same about the Confederate flag. In the popular imagination, the civil rights movement began with Rosa Parks, shall we say. But in fact, there has been resistance to racism from the very beginning. We don't have time to go into that very much because I want you, Clarence Lusain, to talk about your maternal grandmother, Carrie Beatrice Medeer Sager. Tell us about her. She's, I would have loved to have met her. <laughs> 
So my grandmother lived in Bessemer, Alabama. Bessemer was right next to Birmingham, Alabama. She was born in 1913. And in the 40s and 50s, she became active around civil rights. And so she was there as the 50s emerges with Rosa Parks, but also the struggle in Birmingham and other places in and around Alabama, cultivating in the march across the Pettus Bridge in 1965 with John Lewis and others that finally secured voting rights. And she was there for all of that. When I was growing up in the late 50s, early 1960s in Detroit, we would go down to visit. But it was very traumatic for me because during that period, segregation very much existed. And my sister and I, we were like, five or six or something. We had to go in the back doors. You know, we would call the N-word pretty regularly. And I was just shocked by the whole thing. And at one point, I just refused to go back to the South. So I didn't go down to the South for almost like 20 years. But I was in touch with my grandmother. And she told me stories of her participation on her activism. There was a very famous children's march in 1963. She was active around that in Birmingham, where hundreds of children were arrested for protesting. Martin Luther King and others had come up with a strategy to have young kids go out and protest. And so my grandmother was active around that. And she was doing all of this while my grandfather was actually very ill. Uh, He had been injured in the mines and she pretty much was his his sole caretaker. So she would often have to sneak out the house to go to protests and the demonstrations. At her funeral, there were plenty of people who got up and testified about how she stood down the KKK, you know, and some of her other activities. But, you know, growing up, she was just my dear. She passed her values on to, on to me and my sisters. And, you know, she told us stories, but just she was our dear. <laughs> That's what she did. Well, I'm so glad you shared about her in your book, $20 and Change, Clarence Lusane. I'm inspired by what her life involved, as I am inspired with so many of particularly the women who have struggled against racism and white supremacy to bring racial justice and democracy. Uh, You've done so many interviews over the years. Is there a question that you are never asked that you wish you were asked? It's a question sometimes my son has asked me. Uh, He's young and he says, Dad, you put in a lot of work working on these books and writing all the time. And what do you get out of it? Right. I told him that I think there is a innate need for posterity and living the best life you can, doing what you can to push humanity forward while you can. And so despite the demands of writing, in particular certain stages, you're just kind of isolated and you're sitting there for hours and weeks and months are worth it because you do your best that you can. Clarence Lusane, we thank you for doing the best that you can. It is pretty darn good. And for your decades of work and for this book, $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy. We very much appreciate your joining us today on Forthright Radio. Thank you so much for having me. You have just heard an interview with Howard University professor Clarence Lusane about his latest book, $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Struggle for Racial Justice and Democracy, published by City Lights Books. 
While I was preparing for this edition of Forthright Radio, a book of artistic documentary photographs self-published by Nate Gowdy titled Insurrection came to my attention. Very much in the spirit of war photographers Robert Kappa, Margaret Bork-White, and Matthew Brady, Gowdy does not just document what happened on January 6, 2021, but creates timeless art from what his lenses captured. Here are excerpts from an extended interview with him from January 11, 2023. The full interview is posted separately on the forthright.media website. Nate, your recent book, Insurrection, is a compilation of photos you took for Rolling Stone magazine on January 6, 2021. It has a foreword by D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Daniel Hodges, who begins with the words, quote, On January 6, 2021, I was fighting thousands of terrorists attempting to capture or kill members of Congress and the vice president and installed Donald Trump as a dictator. End of that quote. He goes on to observe that there were many thousands of photos taken that day via cell phone through the, quote, figurative lens, quote, of celebration and self-righteousness. He then goes on to write, quote, imagine if no journalists were there that day and that theirs was the narrative allowed to promulgate through the ages. I have the impression that you weren't particularly anticipating the magnitude of what would transpire, although you had been covering events involving many of the participants for quite some time. Please set the scene for our listeners of your arrival that morning. I absolutely didn't see where that day was going. Uh, At that point, I'd, I'd already documented upwards of 30 MAGA rallies and Trump appearances and another 20 MAGA adjacent demonstrations, most of those in the Pacific Northwest. But my coverage has taken me to 25 states since 2015 and over 300 events. And every Trump rally is its own special bubble of toxic Americana. And so I expected the day to be ridiculous, but I absolutely didn't see it becoming deadly. The flight into the D.C. metro area late the night before was probably the strangest flight I've ever been on. Why was that? Like passengers was so in your face. It was half the people were wearing MAGA hats and Trump paraphernalia and and trying to start chants of USA, USA and four more years. And then the other half of passengers, predominantly of color, were just people trying to travel from one place to another in peace. And the Trump supporters were so obnoxious. And so I knew right then that it would be different, but I still didn't foresee where the day would lead. Your first time-stamped photograph is 10.41 a.m., and it shows what I imagine is a family. It shows a dad with the littlest child on his shoulders and four older young people and then some other man there. And it's showing them going to the Save America rally at the Ellipse. Anything you want to tell us about that particular time? I was walking from my friend's place where I was staying. I just passed the Capitol and I was walking toward the Washington Monument and then to the Ellipse where I could hear uh, cheers of an, an adoring crowd in the distance. Where I was on National Mall, though, it was very sparsely populated, pretty empty. There were a few people. You know, these people were right behind me. 
excitedly walking in, in the direction of Save America rally. But otherwise, it was pretty quiet. And then this huge uh, gang of militiamen saw kind of marching, heard and saw marching toward us. And they were chanting F word Antifa. And they were in loose formation, but they were wearing tactical gear and helmets. And, and some had concealed faces. And and immediately I recognized one of the front men as Ethan Nordine, Proud Boys lieutenant from the Pacific Northwest. I'd photographed him numerous times. I live in Seattle and he's from Auburn, a suburb of Seattle. And so I was familiar with him. So I knew there were Proud Boys there, but I didn't know whether this was a mixture of the militant groups or if this was just Proud Boys. But there were probably 200 to 300 of them. And so I had a decision to make. Do I keep going to the rally or do I follow these guys who were seemingly not interested in the rally? They were heading the opposite direction before Trump had even spoke. It resembled to me like a bunch of kids ditch in class early who were up to no good. So to clarify, you thought you would be covering the rally on the ellipse and that was basically it. It was a public event. It was permitted. Mm -hmm. So as far as you know, there were no public plans to hold an event on the Capitol grounds. Is that, is that correct? I had heard, kind of suspected that it might be marching in that direction. I was anticipating going to the Ellipse. Yeah, just kind of seeing where this day would go. And Being the journalist that you are, you decided to turn around and follow these Proud Boys, right? That's right. I stood my ground as they kind of, I didn't know what was to come. I didn't know they, what they were preparing for. So I stood my ground as, as they kind of sailed past me on all sides. And, and afterwards, you know, knowing what I, I do now, I, I absolutely wouldn't have done that. I felt a sense of safety because I'd covered them before, a false sense of safety, because in the past I'd noticed they have a sort of machismo code of conduct where you respect their personal space. They'll respect yours, especially as someone in my position with a camera, because they're, of course, aware of optics and public perception and in the past have been hesitant to attack members of the media. And while they are absolutely known as a fight club that instigates confrontation, a lot of times they're trying to not to physically initiate it, but to get the other person to. And so it surprised me within exactly 10 minutes of following them that I was lunged at by a man wearing a Trump cap and, and a covered face. And I was okay. He didn't touch me. But but I, you know, as you can see in my photo in the book on page 28 and 29, that the others are in the wings ready to pounce. And so that was very frightening. That was quite the wake up call. And they got in formation again around 12.45 or so and marched to the Peace Monument at the Northwest Approach to Capitol Grounds. And that's where the insurrection started. It was scary. I All of a sudden, I looked behind me and with my back to the Capitol, and it was a sea of people. A lot of people had steadily trickled away from the president's rally and joined this group of Proud Boys to exercise their First Amendment rights. But all of a sudden, it, it turned rabid. It was, it was you know, the faces hardened. It was war cries, lots of surging adrenaline, truly frightening. And that's when five police patrols behind the perimeter barricade were swiftly overpowered. And these people exercising their First Amendment rights became insurrectionists. When they, they crossed, they went into the note onto the Capitol grounds and trespassed. And they crossed a hard line right. And I am in the middle of it. It's really hard to navigate 
in the middle of a mob. And I, I was attacked again because uh, of my cameras, which othered me among the mob. A guy pointed at me and said, F you, and, and shoved me off a three-foot balustrade at the base of a set of stairs leading to the inauguration day staging area. And I was okay. I'm a good faller. And a lot of people were in shock. There was old and young people alike. And and people helped me and apologized for the man's actions. And because I looked just like them, this crowd was predominantly white and male. And, and here I am, a white male person in, in nondescript clothing. And the only things that othered me were my cameras and my masks, N95 masks, because that was the deadliest day of the pandemic to date with 4,000 reported deaths on January 6th. While many, many people were obviously suspicious of me as quote-unquote fake news, other people assumed I was just another person who had enlisted themselves for the cause. And so all afternoon, I viewed the events of that day from this rarefied space of, of stately pomp and circumstance and, you know, and where presidents are sworn in. And instead, it became American carnage. And, and I didn't know that the mob had been breached in eight other locations and that they'd attacked the east front of the Capitol as well. I had no idea because on the ground there, my cell reception was very poor, my cell data and reception. And so I didn't know the extent of this. I thought the spectacle at the inauguration day stage was the extent of it. I was very proud to serve my civic duty and, and very proud that my images, my work have been used to hold insurrectionists accountable. This case was this case was just huge. It took place in August of 2022, and I was found by the organization Crew, a DC-based team of lawyers. Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. What an awesome, awesome group of people and activists trying to hold the government and people accountable. And Coy Griffin is the Cowboys for Trump founder. His claim to fame was when President Trump retweeted him as saying, the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. And Coy Griffin also happened to be county commissioner for Otero County, New Mexico. And so Section 3 of the 14th Amendment states that insurrectionists aren't fit to hold office in this country. And so Crew took him to trial to get him barred from actively holding office and succeeded after a two-day landmark trial in which I was the eyewitness who had from on the ground and, and had photos of him and inciting the crowd. He, he, he tried to insert himself into a leadership position and, was, and had a bullhorn for a few minutes leading the mob in prayer. And then he seemed to be reveling in, in everything that was happening. And so I'm very proud to have been a part of that. But more importantly, he's the first person to officially be deemed an insurrectionist in this country. And it was the first time in the court of law that January 6th has been officially labeled as insurrection. And yeah, it, it doesn't set direct precedent since this was in the state court, but it does provide a, a roadmap for trying other insurrectionists leading all the way to the top to Donald Trump. Does this also mean that your work is officially recognized as documentary evidence of crime? Certainly. I witnessed the attack of AP photojournalist John Minchillo, and I was tentatively slated to be a federal witness in, in the trial of his four assailants. It never went to trial, so I, I you know, assume that was another case that went to a plea deal. But uh, also, the FBI's been to my photo studio here in Seattle, and they've been in touch since the beginning. And I've given them my photos. And, and if you look at the January 6th, the most wanted list, the FBI has used a couple of my images in search of these individuals. 
I didn't come exactly prepared and I didn't have any protective gear except for my N95 mask, whereas many colleagues, members of the press were equipped in protective head to toe. They were militarized. They were wearing helmets, goggles, gas masks, knee pads, boots, you name it, and flak jackets. And, and I wasn't prepared in that way. And I'm, I'm a chicken, you know. And so, I, you know, I was in survival mode. And I was, of course, excited to be there because uh, the strange person I am, I would have been very regretful had I not been there to witness it and document it. I'd missed Charlottesville years before because I'd been at a, a friend's beautiful wedding taking pictures. And, and I just kept hitting myself that I missed that moment, that part of the story. And on this day, I, I didn't remember a huge sense of fear, but I may have been confusing fear for excitement. I do not regret that I was in the middle of that. I, I wanted to be. But that said, close to the medieval hand-to-hand combat happening and all the, uh, of course, chemical pollutants and caustic chemicals were infiltrating the air all around us as it was a very, very windy that day. But I didn't want to be up, up close to it. And so my goal that day was to see it from the perspective of these riders and to, instead of taking a step forward, to take that step back so that I could take in the whole scene. It wasn't the battle that was the news story. It was where it was taking place. And I wanted to make photos that included the iconic Capitol Dome in the background. This is a space that's historically one of decorum and dignitaries. And, and again, to use... President Trump's words, January 6th was the opposite. It was he had literally manifested American carnage. A lot of loved ones and, and people I meet, they always ask whether I have trauma from that day because a lot of people, politicians, staffers inside the Capitol, documentarians, police officers who were brutally and savagely attacked have a lot of documented trauma. And, and I don't, not that I know of, I'm, I'm fine. But the trauma I experienced was, yeah, two days later when the evidence that I had from probably what will be the most historical day I will ever photograph was lost. All of a sudden it was gone. And, you know, my gear was gone, but that wasn't my worry. It was my <laughs> these photos after documenting. I thought this day had was Trump's last stand. I thought finally the Republicans would disavow him and it would be the end. And and I had been planning a huge tomb of a book documenting this political era. And now the ending was the grand finale was was gone. And so I was devastated. I would have I would have sacrificed a lot of things, I would have sacrificed my health to see those photos again. And so it was a miracle when an acquaintance on social media found my camera listed two days later and on the online marketplace. And I reached out to the, the quote unquote seller and they didn't get back to me. And so it was hard. That was even harder to lose your things and to find them again and then to be so close yet so far from getting them back. And so I, I reluctantly took a plane back to Seattle. And when I landed, that's when I got a call from my friend I'd been staying with. We'd been messaging the seller from his account and the seller had reached out and wanted me to call them. And so hopped on the phone and I didn't dislike them, but unfortunately this was a way of life for these people. They saw an opportunity. They were from the projects very manipulative. They kept saying, praise be to God that, that he's brought us together so we can help each other. And as they attempted to extort $2,000 and I had filed a police report with Amtrak police. And fortunately, the seller I'd just spoken to on the phone agreed to meet at the scene of the crime, which was key because uh, Amtrak police don't have jurisdiction anywhere else. And they were they had been very helpful, but but again, admitted they there's not much they could do. It's like stolen 
photo gear or audio gear for that matter is like finding a needle in a haystack. It usually doesn't work out for its original owner. But they went above and beyond to coordinate a safe and successful sting with my friend on the Monday following January 6th, in which he he identified all my things and the police were in the wings and and swarmed and uh, the detained individual, they fingerprinted him and got that person's info. And and I'm not convinced it was the same person who stole my things in the first place. This was a team of people working of associates. But basically, I didn't press charges because that was never my intention. It was not to make this person's life harder. But again, I didn't I didn't want it happening to two other travelers at Union Station. So they were banned for life. From what I learned from working with these police officers is they're very visual. So I'm I'm a very, very, very lucky person. And in this book and this history wouldn't exist if, if not for their effort. And yeah, in my great community. The book has been a labor of love that's I've dedicated 14 months of my life to, and I'm I'm just a photographer getting by in Seattle, and and I think it's it's mind-boggling to me that this is the only this is the first book of photojournalism of that day. I don't know of another one. I know of a few zines, but there's no other publication, magazine, or book that is a visual chronicle of the event, those events, and and that and that's strange to me because what I've realized is people, when the first edition sold out, I realized people want something they can hold in their hands and, and point to and say, hey, look, this happened. It's right here. And so I'd like just to say, hey, check it out. But my website, www.nategowdy.com, it's for sale directly from me there. Just want to sell some books because it's been basically, this is not a money maker. This is just trying to me to to monetize doing this thing I have a passion for and in which I'm good at. And so I just want to make this work. And in order to do that, I need to continue to sell books and uh, to pay off all this debt that I took on to, to print them. And so uh, publishing, it's a it's a weird thing right now. And but it's just been a hell of an effort and just trying to make it work. And so I can get out there and do more of this. You have just heard excerpts from an interview with art photographer Nate Gowdy about his experiences on January 6, 2021, which led to his self-publishing his amazing book of photos, Insurrection. You can find out more by going to his website, nategowdy.com, and you can hear the entire interview posted on Forthright Radio's website, forthright.media. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of the station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joyla Clare. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Till next time, this is Joyla Clare, signing out for now.